0: Uh, There are quite a few visitors here tonight, and so uh, I just want to let you know, as you look at churches uh, when you're new to town, uh, that there's really three ways that churches structure the worship services. Uh, One way is they use this thing called the lectionary. Now, they're never going to use the word lectionary, but they use it. And the lectionary really is about the church calendar, and the church calendar has these seasons of uh, Advent and Christmas, then Lent and Easter, and then it has this really long time in the middle called Ordinary Time. And the way that, the, 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 that what happens in here is all about that calendar. It's electionary. Uh, the second way is topical. That what churches do is that they appraise the needs of their congregation, of the community, and they create series uh, of sermons. And then the, everything else happens in worship reflects those series uh, to, to, to meet the felt needs of their church and their community. So topical. Uh, the last is uh, this word expository. I didn't know what other word to kind of come up with. But other churches, they choose the book of the Bible. They work their way through it passage by passage. And the goal is to expose the meaning from that text through the preaching and everything else that happens in the worship and then applies it to their life. Now, none of these, lectionary, expository, topical, are necessarily right or wrong. Uh, In fact, we as a church here at Hope, we've used all three of these at different times, but our steady diet has been expository. When we got started four years ago, uh, we were in the book of Mark for the first year, and then we were in the book of 1 Peter for the second year, and then we did Judges in the third year, and in the fourth year, uh, we did Acts uh, chapters 1 to 13, and we'd really like to go from New Testament book to Old Testament book, New Testament book, Old Testament book, year to year. And so t- today, I really want to. We're going to hang up Acts for the time being. We're going to press pause. Uh, if you ask me when we're going to pick it up, I don't know, but we will someday, and we'll be in chapter 14, verse 1. And um, we're going to hang up Acts because we are going to move to the Old Testament. And so next week, we'll start with the book of Esther. And uh, today, really what I want to do is summarize chapters 1 to 12. I know I got through 13, but we're going to do 1 to 12 because a transition happens at the beginning of 13 that goes from Peter to Paul. I really just want to summarize Peter. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing uh, this evening, is summarizing the message of Acts 1 to 12. So let's pray. Uh, Father, um, uh, my oratory skills are of, little, are of no value, actually. Uh, When it comes to changing the human heart, Uh, my preparation is of um, uh, no value when it comes to changing the human heart. Uh, Lord, uh, the aesthetics of this building are of no value to change the human heart. Uh, Lord, the only thing that will change the human heart is your spirit uh, when it's wielding your word. So Lord, would you wield your word uh, today and you make us new people. We pray you do this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This past week was a big week at the Womhoff household. Uh, Jen and I celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary. Um, we, we, we really barely made it. Um, and I looked at our wedding picture at Haynes in my office up there on the third floor, uh, and I thought two things. I thought, that is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my whole life. And who in the world is that guy? Um, it's getting to be I really do look different than I did when I got married I I, I said oh 10 years ago I didn't really look that different 15 I definitely look different Um, but in this 15 year span that we've been married we've covered a lot of of ground Uh, our relationship has seen us obtain five degrees Uh, we've lived in three states Kentucky, Alabama, Massachusetts Uh, we've we've owned three homes we've lived in five apartments and we've had three kids And I'm really hoping that over the course of the next 15 years, we don't cover that much ground because I don't think I've got it in me. Uh, But if we're honest, the last 15 years aren't really about these landmark moments of graduations and kids and moves and jobs. They really aren't. When I zoom out and look at the 15 years of our marriage, I begin to see the one constant thing that runs through all 15 years. I begin to see that there's something more going on in the landmark moments. I begin to see there's something going on beneath the surface of these landmark moments. I begin to see how God's used Jenna in my life to help me glorify and enjoy him. I see how God's used me to help Jenna glorify enjoy him. I see how God has used me and Jenna in others' people's lives to glorify and enjoy him. Just like we said earlier, that's what my life's about. That's what your life's about. That's what marriage is about. That's what the church is about. That's what the whole world is about. So it's really good to zoom out and see the big picture, isn't it? And so what we need to do is zoom out and see that our lives are a puzzle piece in a much larger picture. If you take a puzzle, a puzzle piece and you isolate it from everything else, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But when you fit it into the whole, it does begin to make sense. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out and we're going to summarize the first half of the book of Acts. So let's read Acts chapter 1, uh, 1 to 11 together. In the first book, O Theophilus. So Theophilus, let's pause for a moment. Theophilus is who? Luke the author of this book is writing to. He's writing to a person. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. So, uh, let's, let's, let's look at this. Um, Acts uh, is volume two of Luke's work. Luke's biblical writing encapsulates two volumes. Volume one, it's the, his gospel. And it has Jesus' life, it's got his death, and it's got his resurrection. And then volume two, the book of Acts, it starts with this account. And this account includes his ascension. And if the ascension is the last thing that you knew happened in the Christian faith, you would say, oh my gosh, this whole thing that Jesus started, it's about ready to tank. They've just lost their central figure. There's no way it can keep going without him. And I'm sure that's exactly what they were thinking at Apple. They were thinking that Apple when Steve Jobs ended up dying of cancer. That's what we would think if we got the news that Coach Cal had resigned. (laughs) That's what we would think uh, if we were at a funeral for a matriarch or a patriarch, somebody, an older, strong figure in our family. If they had died, we'd say, how in the world is our family going to continue in the way that it has? And that's exactly what the readers in Acts felt when Jesus ascended into heaven. Sure, he didn't die this time, but he's still not there. And what Luke wants us to know, starting here in this very first passage and all the way through the book of Acts, is that the kingdom of God is moving forward. The show must go on. The (coughs) the kingdom of God is still present. And that's why Luke opens up with this phrase, I have written to you all the things Jesus began to do. In other words, Jesus is still acting in Acts, even though he ascends into heaven at the very beginning. The Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, is all about the things Jesus began to do, and then Acts is about all the things that Jesus continues to do. And so if you have to summarize what Jesus continues to do in Acts 1 1 to 12, what would you say? Well, there's lots of ways to say it, but I think one way you can say it is that Jesus is about bringing physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people. Okay, that's my summary statement. If you're a note taker, here you go. What is Jesus about? Both in his gospel, now in Acts, and even in the present day. What's he all about? Jesus is about bringing physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. There's these things called pew Bibles. And amazingly, they're in your pew. And uh, if you see one, I want you to grab it. And I want you to share it with your neighbor. You might have to share it with two neighbors. And we're just going to look at some high points. All right? If you've never picked up a Bible, it's okay. I'm going to help you. There's this really awesome thing in the front of your Bible called a table of contents. And you will go to it, and you'll find the book of Acts. Because there's lots of books in the Bible. I think there are 66 books in the Bible. Uh, Acts is um, about three-quarters to four-fifths of the way through. Uh, it's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then you'll see Acts. Uh, and we're, uh, we're not going to read uh, chapters 1 to 12. We'd be here uh, till the sun went down. Uh, but what we are doing is I'm going I'm to point out some, some places, and you're going to be flipping with me, okay? I've never done this before. I feel really insecure about it. Uh, so just do it with me so I, I can sleep tonight. Um, would be helpful. All right, so we're going to look at physical, how, how, how Jesus is bringing physical wholeness, how he's bringing spiritual wholeness, and then we're going to look at how he does it with all kinds of people, all right? Let's start with physical wholeness. Uh, Go to Acts 3. When you go to Acts 3, you'll see the heading there. It's going to say, a lame beggar is healed. So he's bringing physical wholeness in two ways. In one way, uh, he's helping someone who has a a physical abnormality. He's also uh, helping someone who is in great need in terms of lack of resources. He's a beggar. And he heals a lame beggar. Flip over to chapter 4. Look at verses 29 and 30. In verses 29 and 30 of chapter 4, you'll see that the church prays. And the church prays for two things. The church prays that God would continue to speak uh, through his word with great boldness through the church. And then you'll see that the church prays that Jesus would stretch out his hand to heal. All right? Again, what Jesus is trying to do is bring physical wholeness to the world. That's why they pray that he would continue to heal. Acts 4.34 You'll see there's a summary statement about, the ch- about what was going on within the church. And one thing that you could say about the church in Acts 4.34 is that there was not a needy person among them. In other words, they weren't just like, okay, let's give uh, all our money to evangelism to reach people for Jesus. They said, uh, that's important. But what's also important is that all of us have what we need as a community. All their basic life needs were met. Acts 5.12 You'll see that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. These signs and wonders aren't magic tricks. These signs and wonders are about bringing physical wholeness to people who needed it. Acts 5.15. You'll see that people laid uh, sick folk uh, in front of Peter that his shadow might just touch them, that they might be healed. Now that's some serious power on Peter's part, right? Why were they doing that? Because they knew that Jesus was bringing physical wholeness as a part of his kingdom. Acts 6-8. Flip another page, perhaps. You'll see Stephen. Uh, Stephen uh, is a leader in the early church, and he's full of grace and power, and he's doing great wonders and signs among the people. Acts 8-7. You'll see that many who are paralyzed or lame, that they're healed in Acts 8-7. Acts 9, 32 through 35, you have Aeneas. Aeneas is a paralyzed man, and he's healed. Right after that, uh, starting in verse 36, you have a different account. It switches from Aeneas and goes to Dorcas. And Dorcas was a woman who was dead, and Peter raised her to life. Acts 11, uh, verses 27 to 30. If you flip there, you'll see that there was a famine. And there was a famine that fell all across the Middle East, and the church came to the aid of those who needed food. Because physical wholeness mattered to them. Okay? Physical wholeness. you get it? I just gave you a long line. There were actually others. I didn't include them. All right? Physical wholeness. Now let's go to spiritual wholeness. All right? There's a ton here, too. Acts, flip back to Acts 2.42. Uh, there's a few of these summary statements throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 2, 38 through 42 is one of those summary statements. And in verse 42, the, the end of that summary, it says that many were added to their number. In other words, a lot of people were converted and came to faith. Evangelism was going on. You got Acts five fourteen. Flip over there. You have, um, you have more believers who are added to the Lord. You have multitudes of both men and women added in Acts 5.14. Acts 5.16, you see something else spiritual going on, and it's not just new converts. In Acts 5.16, you see those who've been afflicted by unclean spirits. They were healed. Acts 6.7, the word of God increased, and the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly. Acts, Acts 8, you see more unclean spirits. They come out of those who are possessed, and many are baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 9, the, persecu- the greatest persecutor of the church, Saul, is converted. Later in Acts 8, or uh, um, later in Acts 9, it says that Saul's ministry from the very beginning. This guy's not been to seminary. This, sec- this guy's not even been to Sunday school. And at the end of Acts, Acts 9, verse 31, it says that his ministry is producing unity in the church, and that's multiplying the ministry of the church. Acts nine thirty-five. we we'll move back to Aeneas. People see Aeneas, he's, he, he's this paralytic who's healed, and guess what happens? Many people turn to the Lord. Many people repent because they see that there's a king in town who's bringing physical wholeness, and they see, oh, maybe he can bring spiritual wholeness to me. Then you've got Acts 10. Acts 10, you've got uh, Cornelius, and uh, there's many others in the town where Cornelius is at. The town's called Caesarea. They hear the gospel, they repent, they're baptized. And they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 11, uh, verses 19 through 26. Uh, after Stephen, uh, we, that we mentioned earlier, and, uh, in, in the beginning of chapter 7, he preaches this long sermon. At the end of his sermons, they stone him. And it's not because he preached a bad sermon. It's just that they didn't like what he had to say. Because what he had to say about Jesus was going to cause them to have to change their lives. And they didn't want to do that. So they kill him. So the Jews who are in Jerusalem, at the time of that stoning, they go to all these other places. They go to Antioch, and they go to Phoenicia, and they go to Cyprus. And when they go to Antioch and Phoenicia and Cyprus, they begin preaching. And they're leading others to faith in Jesus. And that's what we see in Acts 11. Acts 12, verse 24, there towards the end of the chapter, you see that it says the word of God increased and multiplied. So here you have it. You've got Jesus bringing physical wholeness and he's bringing spiritual wholeness in the early church in in chapters 1 to 12. Now think about this in your experience. Now the kinds of churches that you've been exposed to, maybe you've been exposed to them because you've actually been a part of them. Maybe you grew up in it. Maybe you've just seen it on TV. Maybe you've read the books. Maybe you've listened to the sermons. What What has been the emphasis? No one perfectly balances the spiritual and the physical wholeness that Jesus wants to bring, but all of us, based on our traditions, based on our own personal individual stories, we all overemphasize one at the exclusion of the other. But if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that they're emphasized equally. All right, so you see that happening, and it didn't just happen among the Jews, which the apostles were; they were Jews. It happened with all kinds of people. You got all kinds of ethnicities, and you know that from the very beginning. The passage that I read earlier, verse eight, says uh, uh, that Jesus tells them, "You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the othermost ends of the earth." Okay, so you begin to get the the point. There aren't Jews in all those places, so if they're going to reach non-Jews, non-people who don't necessarily speak Hebrew, the gospel is going to have to cross ethnic lines in order to reach those people. And so you know that's going to happen based on what you read in verse 8 if the apostles follow it, and they do. And as you read Acts 1 to 12, you see this happening. Jews, lots of Jews come to faith. You have an African come to faith, a very dark skinned man come to faith in the Ethiopian eunuch. You've got Samaritans who come to faith, you've got a Roman centurion, that's Acts 10 with Cornelius. And then you've got these Greek-speaking Jews, not the Hebraic ones, the Greek-speaking ones, and they're called Hellenists. That's what we see with Stephen at the beginning of chapter 6. So all kinds of people, meaning all kinds of ethnicities, but you also have people from all kinds of socio-economic backgrounds. you got some rich folk. you got some, some elitists who are a part of the converted. Cornelius was really rich. Uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was really rich. Saul was highly educated. But then you got some poor folk among them, among them. You've got all kinds, of, all kinds of folks with disabilities, like the lame beggar. And both the rich and the poor are changed by the power of the gospel. You've got the ethnicities, you've got the socioeconomics, and you've got gender. At multiple points, I think there are three. There are three points between Acts, in, in Acts in Acts 1 to 12, where Luke goes out of his way to say men and women." What's he trying to tell us? He's trying to say that the gospel reaches all kinds of people. But doesn't this sound like you're reading one of the gospels? If you read through Luke, you might have the same exact summary statement. That Jesus brings physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people. See, Jesus healed some people from their physical brokenness, and he healed others from their spiritual brokenness. His ministry is both one of word and deed. Then he ministered to all kinds of people. But the difference between Acts 1-12 and the Gospel of Luke is pretty clear, isn't it? You just replace Jesus with Peter in Acts 1-12. You get a sprinkle of Stephen. You get a little sprinkle of Philip. You get a little sprinkle of Saul. But for the most part, it's about Peter. And Peter's being used by Jesus' spirit to bring about this wholeness. And you say, oh, Marsh, you know, Peter, Peter, you know, the rock upon which Jesus has built his church. There are churches called St. Peter. There's one on Short Street. I know that Peter's written a couple of the books of our Bible. I know that he's pretty much the key figure in Acts 1 to 12. But let's not forget that he's a fallen human being. Remember that week before the week of the Passion, what Peter's life was like? Do you remember what happened? In that week, he cut off a Roman centurion's ear. In that week, he denied Jesus three times when he said he would never do so once. During that week, he fell asleep on Jesus when Jesus asked him to pray in his greatest hour of need. So he's a screw-up. But maybe you're saying, "Well, Mars, yeah, he was a screw up back in Luke, but you know, in Acts two, don't you remember? He, he at Pentecost, he preached that sermon, and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. It's like he's a, a brand new person once he receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He goes from being this coward, this sheepish coward, to being this roaring lion because of the Spirit. And that is true in some ways. But even after Pentecost, Peter is a mess." Think about it. We talked about it when we were in Acts 10. He's got to receive this vision. He's dealing with Cornelius here. Cornelius is a Gentile. In fact, he's the Gentile of Gentiles because he's a Roman centurion. If you asked a Jew, give me a picture. If you had to pick one picture of what uh, what a Gentile is, they would hold up for you. A Roman centurion. And so Peter's got to go preach to this guy, and he's a Jew. He doesn't really want to be a part of the kingdom. And so what does Jesus have to do? He has to give him the same dream, not once, not twice. He's got to do it three times. Why? It's because of his ethnocentricity. Is that he thinks that the kingdom of God is only for Jews. And then if you're familiar with your New Testament, you know that in Galatians 2, Peter gets called out, and he gets called out with a really firm scolding from the Apostle Paul. And he gets called out for the same thing, that he's showing favoritism toward the Jews over the non-Jews. So sure, he's being used by God in great ways to bring physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people. But it's that all kinds of people part that's really hard for Peter. You might say, come on, Marshall. I mean, two hiccups. We got two hiccups on this guy? And you're going to nail him to the cross like that? I mean, his ministry rap sheet is still pretty impressive. I get it. But Peter's a failure. He's a screw-up, too. He's not the first screw-up we find in the Bible, and he's definitely not the last. Think about Abraham. Abraham doubted God, and he was an adulterer. Think about Moses. Moses was a murderer. He was a scaredy cat. He's a workaholic. David was all of the above. And he was a poor father. What we're going to find out about Esther is that she was a seductress. What you see in Samson in the book of Judges is that he's a slave to his appetites. Yet, God used Abraham. He used Moses. He used David. He used Esther. And he used Samson to bring about physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people. I know this is a really crazy plan on God's part to involve people like me and you, and people like Samson, and people like Peter. You know, Jesus, he really doesn't have to use the medium of human agency to bring his reign on earth. He could just directly intervene, and he could bring us to faith and use visions and dreams. But that's not the normal way he does things. His normal way is to use people. Now, he could bring us physical wholeness. He could just magically heal our bodies while we're asleep. He could feed us with bread from heaven like he did in the Old Testament. I think he can and occasionally does do things like this. But his normal way of bringing about physical wholeness in the world is to use people like medical professionals. To use things like prescriptions. To feed us with things like farms. To use nonprofits, to use government agencies, to use generous individuals to make sure the hungry are fed. Physical wholeness. So, when you think of God using you to bring about physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people, do you think you're qualified? You might sit there and say, Marsha, I've got some major issues. I mean, I've told you some of them, but i got some more. You might be saying, Marsha, I, I mean, I'm a porn addict. What do you want me to do? you really think I can help folk? You might say, Marsha, I've been addicted to substances. I've been on and off of them for as long as I can remember. I've, I've been abusing them. I, I'm probably even an addict, just not gotten help. God can't use me. Marsh, you you know when I get this empty hole in my heart, I just go and I spend money on things I really don't need. It's compulsive. I don't know how I can stop. God can't use me. Marsh, I've got this mental illness. God can't use me. I'm a victim of abuse. God can't use me. And maybe you've heard preachers before say to you, in effect, with the barrier that you've put up, your disqualification that you've arisen, and essentially said those are just excuses you just need to get over it get out there and be a part of Jesus mission in the world to bring about physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people well i'm not going to say that tonight instead i want to look at what's beneath the barriers what's beneath your disqualifications and show you that there's a universal problem that we all have when it comes to thinking about being used by God in the world. And what's underneath of it is this thing called shame. Now what shame does is it comes after your identity. Shame doesn't come after your actions. That's what guilt does. Guilt comes after an action here or there and says says you should feel convicted about it. But what shame does is that it goes after the core of who you are. And it begins to say things like, because you're an addict, because you're an adulterer, because you're a delinquent, because you're a coward, you could never be used by God. That's what shame does. And it's one of the devil's favorite tools. One author says that shame creates an absorption with self, they can make us feel as if we're drowning in quicksand. Shame has the potential to arrest passion, to close down desire, and to turn the heart away from sorrow. And once passion, desire and sorrow are dormant, the heart freely returns to shame End quote." See, what shame does is that it calls hope a joke. What shame says is this is just the way I am. I could never change. Therefore, I'm disqualified. And think about Peter. You know that in in Acts chapter 10, if you read it, he sees, he has his dream three times. He preaches. It looks like he gets after there, but I've got to use my sanctified imagination. And I've got to think that there was a point where Peter thought, why did I have to receive that three times to get it? I think he hung his head and he thought, how can a bigot like me be used by God? And then Galatians 2. Galatians 2 where Paul calls him out squarely. I know he hung his head and he said, I'm a bigot. How in the world could God use me? And I think in those two moments, I think there was something there where he fought back against this powerful force, this force of shame. And I think he began to remember the words that he preached. Words that once were for his hearers are now for him. And he began to remember in Acts 2.38 and 5.31 where he pronounces the forgiveness of sins. That yes, they, he was saying that to them, but now he's realizing that's true for him. In Acts 3.16, he tells people that their sins could be blotted out and times of refreshing would come to their soul. And now he's thinking, my sins have been blotted out. Times of refreshing are right around the corner. I think he remembers in Acts 4.12 where he says that salvation is found in no one else but the name of Jesus. I think he begins to think, you know what? Salvation is not... Found in my ability to keep Christian morality? My salvation is found in Jesus and him alone. I can raise my head. I I think in Acts 9.34 where he pronounces to Aeneas, Christ heals you, that the Holy Spirit was whispered in his ear in those times where he was living in shame town and said, Peter, Jesus Christ heals you. I think he remembers when he's at Dorcas's bed, and Dorcas is laying there, dead, just a corpse. And he said, Dorcas, arise. And she raised again for the dead. I think the Holy Spirit stood by Jesus, stood by Peter. He said, Peter, arise. Now I know these truths are hard to believe when you're living in a Shame Town. But friends, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are blotted out. Times of refreshing are on the way. Your salvation is found in Jesus and him alone. Jesus really has healed you. Jesus really has risen you again from the dead. Therefore, Jesus will use you to bring about physical and spiritual wholeness to all kinds of people. Let's pray. Oh, Father, take us. uh, Take our barriers, our disqualifications, and Lord, show us that there's a better word that's been spoken than the word of shame. And it's the word of the gospel that tells us that we're your sons, that we're your daughters, that we're dearly loved, forgiven, and promised new life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.